Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Springs. We hope you enjoyed that time of prayer on Facebook Live. And thank you so much for joining us here on YouTube. Uh, this is our fifth week gathering online, and I can't believe it's been over a month since the last time we have physically gathered. Uh, though we can't see you, we have not stopped thinking about you or praying for you. And if you are joining us this morning and you've never stepped foot into this building, on behalf of the Springs Church, I just want to say welcome to the family. Uh, the church is not a building, it is a family. And you don't need to walk into this building to become a part of this family. So once again, we are so thankful you are joining us and we are praying that this service would bless your life and help deepen your relationship with God. Today, I have the honor of introducing a three-week sermon series on the subject of discipleship we are calling Follow Me. One of the reasons we are doing a series on the subject of discipleship uh, as a church is because our heart here is to honor God and make disciples. If you've been with us for a while or you're joining us online, you've probably noticed in the background the statement on the wall, honor God and make disciples. If you've been growing with us at the Springs, you may have noticed that this is a very common word in our vocabulary. Whether you are a Christian or not, uh, you probably have some familiarity with the word disciple. You may have some context for it, but it's, it's one of those words, kind of like the word leadership or, or leader, that everyone has a general understanding of, but there's not a lot of clarity on it. So as a church, we want to stop and pause and say to ourselves, honestly and practically, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? So starting today and for the next two Sundays, we are going to elaborate on the subject of discipleship in this series called Follow Me. Now, the phrase follow me is used 20 different times in the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament. So we are going to look at two different moments in the life of Jesus where he says, follow me. The first moment we are going to look at is in Mark chapter 1, 16 through 20. Now, before I read our scripture, in keeping with our new digital tradition, I'm going to ask you to pause this video in a moment. And when I, when I ask you to do that, I want you to do three things. Number one, go grab a, a piece of paper and something to write with so you can take notes and follow along. Number two, I want you to open up your Bible to Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20, and read it out loud to yourself or to your family. And then after you've done those two things, take a moment to pray. And ask God to transform you into his image through the word and to help you engage the word today. And then after you've done those three things, you can unpause the video. So go ahead and hit pause. Thank you. Thank you for taking a moment to do those three things. Now let's read the word together. Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20. It says this, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So in this moment, we have a Jewish man speaking to Jews about Jewish things. These words that Jesus is speaking have a very specific meaning and embody the very well-known aspect of first century Jewish culture. 
In other words, the listeners and early readers of this letter knew exactly what Jesus was talking about and saying when he said, come and follow me. And in this current moment that we are living in, we are disconnected from this cultural moment in scripture by a few thousand years. So in order to appreciate this moment in Jesus' ministry, we need to travel back in time and define a few words that are crucial to understanding this moment. In other words, our understanding and study of discipleship has to be filtered through a Jewish perspective and Jewish understanding if we are to fully understand what Jesus means when he says, follow me. So the first step in helping us understand this phrase, follow me, is understanding the first century Jewish education system. During Jesus' time, there were three educational levels that existed for the Jews, more or less the way our education system is set up. Kids go through elementary school, then middle school, and then high school. In a similar way, Jewish boys and girls would go and pursue a formal education, but what made their schooling a bit different was there was really only two or three textbooks that were used, and all of these books were religious Jewish holy books, uh, religious books about Judaism and their history and experience with God. So in the first level of education, it was for the 6 to 12 age range. Your textbook was the Torah. The first five books of the Hebrew Bible or what Christians call the Old Testament. And one of the goals in this first level of education was to learn how to read and write. But another important goal was to memorize the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. That is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, in, in my Bible, that is about 265 pages worth of content. If you're a numbers guy, that comes out to 187 chapters or 5,852 verses. Imagine trying to memorize all this by the time you were 12 years old. Upon completion of this first level of education, if you were a young boy, you would conclude with a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah if you were a young girl. And this was a ceremony welcoming the young boy or girl as a member of the community who is now held accountable to the law. So what's next after that? Well, if you were a female, you would get married and start to bear children by the ages of 13 or 14. This was a common experience in the ancient world. And if you were a male, you would go work for your father and learn the family business. Maybe you would become a carpenter, a shepherd, a fisherman, a tanner. Whatever it is that your family practiced, whatever their trade was, you would take that on. But for those young men who showed great promise in this initial phase of learning, they were encouraged to, co to continue their education following their bar mitzvah. They would move on to the second level of education. And so these next two levels were reserved for boys who expressed interest and potential in one day being a rabbi. The second level of education was from about 13 to 15, and the last level lasted from 15 to 30 years old. Now, these two levels were extremely difficult and very exclusive. It was reserved for the best of the best. Very few students would actually go on to pursue this education. At the age of 12 or 13, most boys or, and girls would go off and get married and learn the family trade. But if you showed potential, what you would do 
is approach a rabbi and ask if you could follow him and if he could disciple you. It was, it was very literal. You would follow him everywhere so you could learn how to become a rabbi of your own. And he would disciple you, you would be his student, and he would teach you everything he knows about the Jewish scriptures. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this was a very exclusive relationship. If a rabbi knew you were not worthy, he wouldn't even bother taking you on. But if you showed potential, you would get an interview, and this rabbi would grill you. He would try to gauge your understanding on the Jewish scriptures and see if you had what it takes to become a rabbi. And if he saw that you were capable of being a rabbi one day, he would give you this very exclusive invitation. He would say, come and follow me. Now, discipleship was a common occurrence in the ancient world. In fact, the Greek word for disciple means to be a learner, a student, and a follower. There were all types of student-teacher relationships where a student would apprentice a teacher and learn a skill or trade. The first century world displayed a variety of religious, philosophical, and political leaders, all of whom had followers who were committed to their cause, teachings, and beliefs. In other words, to be a disciple, or matheteus, that Greek word, means to be a student and follower of someone or something. Disciple was the most common term used to call a follower and student of someone or something. And discipleship referred to the process of growth and development as a disciple. The discipleship relationship were very common in the ancient world, but Jesus comes and introduces something completely uncommon, something radically different. Joel B. Green, in his book, Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospel, says, Jesus took a commonly occurring phenomenon, a master with disciples, and used it as an expression of the kind of relationship that he would develop with his followers. But he would mold it and shape it to form a unique form of discipleship, far different than others. You see, Jesus was a rabbi and had many characteristics of a Jewish rabbi. He taught in their synagogues, he taught in accordance with the Jewish customs, and he was called rabbi by his followers. But one thing that was different about Jesus was the way he called his disciples. Remember what we said earlier. The normal pattern in Israel was for a prospective disciple to approach a rabbi and ask him to be his disciple. And if the rabbi saw that you were worthy, he would say, follow me. Only the elite and most worthy would hear those words. So let's look back at Mark chapter 1, 16 through 20. It says this in verse 16. Jesus was passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, we can infer that these fishermen probably didn't make it very far up the Jewish academic calendar. They were not the best of the best or deemed worthy of going on to that second level of education or let alone pursue a, a apprentice, a rabbi in that third level. So where do we find them? They are fishing, practicing the trade of their fathers. And what does Jesus say? 
In verse 17 it says, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. He gives them the exclusive invitation that only a select few would hear from a Jewish rabbi if they wanted to become a rabbi, uh, what was considered the most important role in first century Israel. Only the best of the best, the brightest, the most talented, the most worthy would hear, come and follow me. And what happens next? Let's look at verse 18 through 20. It says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is an incredible moment. Jesus is calling and extending an invitation to a group of people who would never receive this calling. Fishermen. Uh, the way that I like to think about it is, is imagine if someone approached you and said, hey, come follow me and I will give you this opportunity to come live in your dream vacation destination. All your bills will be paid, you'll be fully salaried, and you'll get to do whatever you want. Now, you would probably say, okay, I will drop everything and come follow you. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't inviting them to this type of relationship, but in essence, they are hearing something so incredible, so wonderful, so exclusive, that they would leave everything behind to follow Jesus because they knew in their context, in their moment, that this was an opportunity of a lifetime. So when a first century rabbi told a potential student to come follow me, they would then be called a Talmudin which is a Hebrew word that means a follower or student of a rabbi. So as a Talmudin or student and follower of a rabbi, you would do two things. One, you would submit to his authority. If a rabbi agreed to a disciple's request, the disciple agreed to totally submit to the rabbi's authority in all areas of interpreting the scriptures for his life. In other words, you would wipe away everything you knew about the scriptures and you would start downloading into your brain whatever the rabbi says. The goal was to learn and study the Torah and understand God the exact same way the rabbi did. The second thing you would do was a process called emulation. In emulation, the goal was to be with your rabbi, with your master, with your teacher 100% of the time so you could emulate him. The goal was to become exactly like your teacher by doing everything that he does, and eventually you would become like him. So in order, in order to do this, you would literally leave everything. You would leave behind your family, your occupation, your lifestyle, so you could go everywhere with your teacher, to the temple, to stores, to homes, and you did everything with him sleep in his quarters, eat, talk, walk. You, you did everything with your teacher and you believed everything they believed. Your goal was to spend as much time as possible with your rabbi so you could learn how to become like him. He would model for you how to become a follower of God. 
uh, there was an understanding too that that this life wasn't natural. So you needed training, you needed instruction, you needed someone to model how to follow God, and that meant dropping everything you were doing and literally going and following Him. Come see how I live. Come and go everywhere with me. Come and watch me and emulate me so you can become a rabbi one day like me. So what did the disciples do when they heard this invitation? They dropped everything they were doing because they received an invitation they were never going to receive in their lifetime. Imagine how they felt. Rabbi Jesus considers me worthy of following him. These guys never envisioned themselves as being worthy of being a disciple. Another incredible follow me moment similar to this one is documented a chapter later in Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. It says this, Jesus went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Verse 15, as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is another incredible moment of Jesus calling an unlikely person to be a disciple of a rabbi, a tax collector named Levi, the ultimate outcast. The religious system rejected tax collectors. Why? Because tax collectors were Jewish people contracted by the oppressing nation, Rome, and tax collectors were essentially paid to further oppress the Jews by making them pay taxes to Rome. And Levi is sitting at the tax booth, and Jesus meets him right where he is and invites him to follow him. Levi must be thinking, this rabbi, Jesus, sees in me the potential to become like him. He thinks I'm good enough to become his disciple. So what does Levi do? Like a Talmudine, like a first century follower of a rabbi, he leaves behind everything and follows after Jesus. He places himself under Jesus's authority in both education and lifestyle. Now, Jesus, what he does in this moment is that he breaks down every single barrier of status, religion, gender, and nationalism. And this is one of the things that makes Jesus's discipleship so unique and so beautiful, is that Jesus extended this invitation to be his follower, to be his disciple, not to a select few, but to everyone. And this time, in first century Judaism, Everything was separated. The clean and the unclean, according to the Old Testament law, were separated. The obedient and the sinful were separated. Tax collectors and Jewish rebels were separated. Jews and Gentiles were separated. 
on a social level, men and women were separated. And Jesus comes and breaks through these barriers and calls to himself those who in the eyes of the religious elite of Jesus' time did not consider worthy or even have the necessary qualifications for fellowship with him. To further quote Joel B. Green from his writing on discipleship, he says, In calling the despised to himself, in sitting down to a meal with tax collectors and sinners, and in having women among his circles, his circle of disciples, Jesus demonstrates that they have been adopted into discipleship to him and fellowship with God. Now let's recap a few things before we get practical. Earlier we said that the ancient word disciple means to be a student and follower of someone or something. In this case, it means to be a student and follower of Jesus. Also, the goal of the Jewish disciple was to someday become masters or rabbis themselves and to have their own disciples who would follow them. But the disciples of Jesus were to remain disciples of their master and teacher and to follow him only. So here is what this means for us today. Every single person watching is a disciple because everyone is a student or follower of someone or something. Everyone is being formed by something or someone they follow and are passionate about, whether it's a a cause, a lifestyle, or a, a person they're gleaning from. The question is not, am I a disciple? The question is, who is discipling you? Who or what are you a disciple of? Who or what influences you, teaches you, forms you, and shapes you? Is it your friends? Is it family, media, politics, an unhealthy lifestyle, or relationship, or is it Jesus? You see, Jesus extends the invitation to everyone to come and follow him. But what we will see in scripture is that ultimately we have to respond to his calling. And there are three responses portrayed by three groups of people that will help us understand where our hearts are towards Jesus. These three three groups of people are mentioned in Mark chapter 2, the portion of scripture we just read. The first group are the Jewish leaders, the second group, the crowds, and the last group, the disciples. These three groups provide a background for much of Jesus' ministry. So let's briefly talk about the first group, the Jewish leaders. This group was radically opposed to Jesus. And as we just read, uh, they were uh, upset about what Jesus was doing all the time, and they were always trying to find a way to stop him and take him out. In fact, they shared responsibility with Romans for Jesus' crucifixion. They hated Jesus. They were radically against Jesus and his cause. The second group was the crowds. This was the neutral group. This was the group of people that showed up to everything because they thought it was pretty cool that Jesus was performing miracles and they were amazed at Jesus' teaching. But in their personal lives, there was never a definitive moment where they went all in for Jesus and committed their life to him. 
There was never a moment where they left everything behind and completely identified themselves with Jesus and committed allegiance to him. They liked what Jesus could do. They liked what he was saying. They really didn't have any problems with him, but they remained neutral. And scripture reminds us that to be neutral with Jesus, in essence, is to be against Jesus. Because he makes it clear in his ministry that you are either for him or against him. You're either all in or not. The crowds followed in a physical sense, but they never devoted themselves to Jesus. They never gave up their old lives and committed themselves to Jesus. The last group was the disciples. The disciples are true followers of Jesus and true believers. The disciples were those who obeyed Jesus' call to follow him. They believed in Jesus as their Lord and committed their lives to his mission and his kingdom. The disciple of Jesus valued Jesus above life itself. This group remained committed and attached to Jesus despite what was going on, despite the persecution. In fact, only the disciples were with Jesus as his followers after the resurrection, including the women who were the first witnesses. So how does this translate for us today? The question we have to ask ourselves is, which group do you find yourself in? Are you radically opposed to following Jesus? Are you against his cause and want nothing to do with him? Could it be that you find yourself in this place because you have misunderstood who he is the way the Jewish leaders did during his time? Are you neutral towards Jesus? Not really hot or cold. You show up to church. You know the verses. You've heard the stories before, but you're neutral. And if you are honest with yourself, you really don't have a desire to follow Jesus. You may have even said something like, I don't have time to follow Jesus, I'm busy with life, or I'll look into seriously following Jesus later, after I'm done living my life and doing whatever it is I want to do. Friend, Jesus invites you to not be simply aware of him or know a few things about him, but he invites you to be in a relationship with him. Because being aware of him and knowing a few things about him isn't enough to experience a transformed life. Jesus invites you to go all in and to be in relationship with him and be his disciple. Now, why is being a disciple of Jesus a better way to live? This is the reality we the reality that we live in, whether you know it or not, is that we are all submitting to something or someone. Scripture makes it clear that that we are slaves to whatever controls us, whether it's our appetites, our our bodily desires, religious system. In fact, as Pastor Peter taught on last week, the common denominator, the great equalizer, is that apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. Instead of being mastered by Jesus, we are mastered by sin. And if we are not servants of Jesus then we are slaves to sin and servants to sin. Slaves to our 
sinful desires, slaves to our addictions, slaves to worldly passions, slaves to fear, worry, approval, self-pity. The list goes on. And Jesus comes and sets us free from the bondage that sin brings to our lives and gives us a life of freedom and purpose that we try to find in other ways to live. You see, in discipleship, Jesus comes and shows us how to live, how to become all that God has called us to be, how to live the life that God lives. He calls us to himself and helps us become just like him so that we can become all that God has originally called us to be, children of God. M.J. Wilkins in his book, Following the Master, says, Discipleship today is living a life, living a fully human life in this world with Jesus and growing in conformity to his image. You see, with Jesus, discipleship was not simply an academic or religious program. Discipleship was a life that began with him as Lord of life and moved into every single area of your life as you are gradually being formed more and more into the image of God. This is the life that Jesus has made available for you and invites you into. Will you, like the fishermen and tax collectors, leave behind anything that stands in the way between you and God and follow him? Let's close in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that you have made available to us the life that, that we desperately need, that we never knew we needed. The life that we, we want, that we've been looking for in other things, you've made available to us in a relationship with Jesus. Lord, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would supernaturally move us from a neutral group or a group that's radically opposed to you to the group that is committed to you, to being a disciple, to being a follower, to leaving behind everything and rejecting anything that stands in the way so that we could commit our lives to being in a relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that as we do that, that our hearts would be illuminated, that our, that our minds would be open to see that being in a relationship with you, that being your follower is a much better way to live. In fact, it is the best way to live. Lord, we are so thankful that you've made this available for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us on YouTube and joining us uh, this Sunday. Next week, we will get even more practical as we teach on the next step in discipleship journey, in the discipleship journey, as we preach a message entitled Counting the Cost. Until then, we hope you can join us for Church Lobby on Zoom, and I hope you have an amazing week. And thank you for joining us.